good morning. Um, it's good to see you. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. If you're a visitor with us, if you're a new, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd, I'd love to meet you after the service, so uh, you can find me somewhere in here, <laughs> uh, and uh, I would love to, love to greet you formally, uh, so welcome. Well, for the last few weeks, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through uh, the various I am statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus uh, uses these statements as a way of disclosing to us and to his followers who it is that he is, what he has come to do, and what he does on our behalf, and subsequently what we are to do in response to what he has done on our behalf. And so we've heard that he is the bread of life and that he is the light of the world, and this morning, we're going to hear that he is the resurrection and the life. Now, one of the things that I've, I've noted is that in saying these things, Jesus isn't just giving us uh, theological abstractions for us to try and store in our, our memory to fill our heads up with doctrine, but actually, Jesus is using these statements, these phrases, as a way to uh, speak comfort and care to his people. Sometimes they're coming with questions or doubts, and so he's challenging those doubts. He's answering their questions. Sometimes they're coming with concern or worry, like they are in this passage. You see, in the passage that we're about to read, we're going to read of Mary and Martha and their friends and great concern that has come upon them. Pain and sorrow loss and concern, things that we have all experienced and all felt, and it is into this circumstance, into this situation that Jesus enters in. And in entering in and declaring that he is the resurrection and the life, Jesus is going to provide comfort for his followers, but he's also going to show us how it is that we are to respond when we find ourselves in these similar circumstances, when we find ourselves confronted with loss and with pain. And so if you would, uh, we're going to read in John 11. It's printed in your order of service, and we're not going to read the entire passage for the sake of time. So if you would follow along, I, I am going to jump a little bit. Beginning in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now skip down to verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit 
and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, Jesus wept. Then in verse 38, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, a few years ago, there was a movie that was released called The Lego Movie. Maybe some of you saw this movie. Um, You don't? Yes. All right. He saw that movie. That's wonderful. Um, So you don't have to have children to appreciate the Lego movie. In fact, I'm convinced that in my household, uh, I am the one who likes it more than everybody else. Uh, it's, It's a very fun movie. It's not just for kids. In fact, a lot of the humor is lost on children. But, uh, but if you've seen it, you know that there's a phrase that once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head. It just sticks there forever. <laughs> and it's that phrase, I'm about to do it to you, so you're probably going to be singing it the rest of the day. I'm, I'm sorry, um, but oh well. <laughs> but the phrase is, everything is Awesome. That's right. Everything is awesome. Those three little words, everything is awesome, are actually the beginnings of a song that really function as the theme song throughout the movie. And the song goes something like this. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of the team. Everything is awesome when we're living our dream. Everything is awesome. The main character, Emmett, he, he embodies this posture towards the world. Everything is awesome. It doesn't even matter when he's confronted with things that are anything but awesome, right? He, he doesn't have any family. No problem, because everything is awesome, right? He pays $32 for a cup of coffee. No big deal. Why? Everything is awesome. His friends, his neighbors, they don't recognize him. They don't see him. They, they kind of just turn idly by as he approaches, but it's not a problem for Emmett. Why? Because that's right, everything, is, but he doesn't know everything is awesome. It's everything is awesome, right? That's how he says it. I'll, I won't sing anymore. That was enough. <laughs> everything is awesome. And it's not just Emmett who imbibes, uh, who, who, who takes on this posture. It's all the citizens of Bricksburg, all of them, no matter their circumstance, no matter their situation, everything is awesome. And somewhere along the way, I don't know where, This would be a very interesting study to go back and look. But somewhere along the way in Christian history, Christians have been caricatured by having this posture as well. Somewhere along the way, we felt that we had to respond to everything in this world as though it was awesome. Right? We we know that Jesus has died for our sins and he has redeemed us. He has rescued us from our sins and given us new life. We now have new purpose and a new identity and all those things are true. So, so all that means is that everything must be awesome, right? I mean, we are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. And so everything is awesome. 
But what about when everything isn't awesome? What about when pain and sadness and sorrow come into our lives? We've all experienced this. Broken relationships, bodies that are breaking down, even death. If you haven't experienced it, you certainly will. What do we do then? I mean, think about the characters in this passage, Mary and Martha and the Jews who came to them. Their brother has died. Lazarus is dead. They are weeping and mourning. Should they simply put on these rose-colored glasses, put on a smile, a facade that doesn't really exude what is going on inside? Is, is this the right approach that they should have? Well, it is into this situation that Jesus comes and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He comes and he declares this to those who are mourning and who are weeping. Is, is that basically the biblical equivalent of the Lego movies, Everything is Awesome? Or is it something else? Is it something different? Well, what I want us to see this morning is that it is different. You see, what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life, it is a statement of triumph over victory, over death and hell and the grave. It points to the fact that death and pain, they're not the way that they're supposed to be. But, but even though it is a statement of triumph, it is not triumphalism. What do I mean by that? I mean, I mean that in Jesus triumphing over the grave, he does not whitewash away our pain or our sorrow he doesn't ignore these deep experiences. Instead, Jesus' identity as the resurrection and the life actually frees us to be honest with hurt and with sorrow. It invites us into it. And that's what we're going to look at, how Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life frees us to respond to death and pain in a very distinctly Christian way. To respond with grief rather than pity, excuse me, piety. Grief rather than piety. <clears throat> That's where he begins. We actually see in this passage all sorts of grief. You see it in verse 19, Martha, Martha and Mary, they're being consoled. We see it in verse 33 that they're weeping. The Jews were also weeping. There is mourning and there is loss. There is grief. And what's amazing is that in the midst of this weeping and mourning, Jesus and Martha have this amazing conversation with one another. And Martha says this in verses 21 and 22. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. In the midst of her pain and her sorrow, there is confidence. Confidence that her current experience, it's not the end that there's something more to come. Okay, but, do, but does that mean that that confidence should cause her to dry her tears, to, to no longer mourn, to, to turn her back on this emotional experience? Should they just simply subside? And that sounds awfully pious, doesn't it? Martha, you're confident that a, a day is coming, a future is in store that will make all this right. And so, so just think upon that day and ignore the pain that you are feeling, that sounds pious to encourage her to stop weeping and embrace this future in the midst of her present reality. And this is often a common response amongst Christians. We move quickly through grief so we can get to praise. 
some of you know, I've, I've shared with a few of you that um, almost 13 years ago, my mother passed away of cancer. So she had been battling for a number of years, and we knew that the end was going to come, but it came quicker than we expected. She died almost 13 years ago at the very beginning of December. A week after Christmas, so not even a, a full month after my mom had passed, Kat and I were in Atlanta because we were having to run a, a campus ministry event, a, a conference in Atlanta. Many of you have been to these sorts of conferences, right, Christian conference, so there's a speaker and there's music and there's, you know, uh, breakout sessions and all these sorts of things. Well, I remember uh, being at this conference and we're singing, you know, the, the lights are low and the band's up there and we're singing this praise and worship song, uh, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. Do y'all know that song? Have y'all heard that one? Okay. So the bridge in that song goes, he gives and takes away, he gives and takes away, but my heart will choose to say, blessed be the name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, that's a very biblical theme, right? I mean, it's actually straight out of Job. That's what Job said. The Lord gives and he takes away. But I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a very biblical theme. And so there I was. I was standing in the back, standing in the back behind all these college students. I'm singing. The lights are down. We're singing. I'm not thinking much about it other than I'm singing. And I'm appreciating the song and the words and all these sorts of things. And my friend comes over to me in the midst of singing. And he looks me in the face and says, Penny, even in your mom's death, blessed be the Lord. Now, my, my friend was trying to be kind. He was trying to be consoling. He was well-intentioned and he was trying to help and he sounded very pious and he was completely insensitive. But more than being insensitive... He did something that was the complete opposite of what we see Jesus doing in this passage. Because look, in Jesus finding himself in a very similar situation with those who have just experienced grief and sadness and mourning, what does he do in verse 33? Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And in verse 35, Jesus wept. He wept. He didn't weep over unbelief. He didn't weep because they were mourning. He didn't weep because he, he thought that they should be more confident or have deeper faith. He wept because his friend had died. He wept. Instead of explaining the suffering of his friends, Jesus does something much more. Instead of explaining the suffering of his friends, Jesus shares in it. He shares in their suffering. He weeps. These aren't crocodile tears. It's not a contrived emotional expression. He truly felt sorrow. Okay, think about that for a second. The one who is the resurrection and the life. The one who triumphs over the grave. He wept over death. The one who will triumph over death, he grieves over death. And so, friends, that, that should actually give us freedom to grieve as well, to mourn, to weep, to grieve. That that is actually the right response. 
that that is the Christian response to death and to pain and to sorrow. See, when loss comes, God isn't just putting up with, with us in our grief. He invites us into it to put aside false piety and instead to grieve, to mourn. That's what the one who is the resurrection and the life does. He grieves with us. When faced with death, he grieves. And so too are we. We're to grieve, but, but we don't just grieve. We also approach death with indignation rather than acceptance. Indignation rather than acceptance. So if, if Christians are, are guilty at times of this kind of false piety, of this whitewashing over pain and sorrow, perhaps our world is, is in danger of just simply accepting death as our friend, as, as a companion that we're supposed to walk alongside of. In fact, the other day I was watching a TV show from a few years ago, very popular, very uh, influential show in our culture, and one of the characters in the show said to another character, he said, death is the natural progression of life. Death is something that's normal, that's accepted in our culture, and it's not just in our culture. Sometimes we, we take on this as well as Christians, that it's simply our friend. But acceptance isn't what Jesus does. He doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, well, that's just how things are. He shows indignation towards death. Righteous anger. Look at verses 33. Verse 33. It says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Okay, those phrases, deeply moved and greatly troubled, uh, commentaries tell us that these are notoriously difficult words to translate out of the Greek and bring the full force of what the original language had intended into our English translations. That it's difficult to get the full force of it. They, these words suggest something akin to anger and outrage and indignation. One theologian put it this way. He said, it is lexically inexcusable to reduce this simply to emotional upset, to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like. No, it's Jesus' response that is that of outrage and indignation towards death. To Jesus, death is the enemy. It's the enemy, not our friend. The Christian philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff, he, he once said that God is appalled by death. That he is displeased with it because death is not a part of God's good creation. Do you remember how God created the world? In Genesis 1 and 2, he created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain, right? The birds that fly in the sky and the fish that swim in the ocean, he created Adam and Eve in his own likeness. And he said what? It is very good. That the whole of the world, it is very good. And Adam and Eve, they were there and they had perfect communion with one another. They worked in perfect harmony with God's world and with God himself. And they were free from pain and sorrow and affliction, and they were free from death. See, God, God created his world not with death as being a natural component of it, but actually as death being an unnatural invader. It is not a part of his good creation. It is something outside of it that has come into it. It is an unnatural intruder. And so God shows indignation towards it, and so should we. 
We should be angry with death because it has actually scarred God's good creation. It is a reflection that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Okay, here's the thing. If, if we accept death and suffering as our friend, if we welcome them, then we are actually tacitly giving up on a belief that, that things will one day get better. We're just accepting them as the norm. We're subtly adopting an understanding of the world that is contrary to belief in a good God. What do I mean by this? Well, um, the philosopher Nietzsche helps us with this. So Nietzsche, who is no friend of Christianity, right? Who is an atheist. He did not believe in God. This is what he said. He said, he rightly said, that those who don't believe in God should not listen to the cries of woe in the world. Instead, they should ignore sorrow and hurt and put aside the desire for a better world. What he's saying is that if you have a view of the world that has absolutely no place in it for God, then you should simply accept death and sorrow and pain as, as a friend and not long for anything different. And he was right. But friends, we're, we don't have room in our theology for that sort of thinking. You see, we, we actually are not opposed to a world where God is at the center. In fact, that is actually the profession that we make. That this is a world that has been created by God, and as such, this is a world that, that is not to have death or sorrow or hurt. Instead of accepting it as our friend, we are to resist it. As believers in the resurrection and the life, we see our feelings of sadness and anger, of grief, and this awareness that things aren't the way they're supposed to be as reflecting a deep knowledge that death is an invader, not to be embraced, but actually to be defeated. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. It's not to be embraced, it's to be abolished. It's to be done away with. It's to be rid of God's good world. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is declaring that he is the defeater of death. And this should cause his people to look upon it with indignation and with scorn, not with acceptance. Okay. So Jesus said that being the resurrection and the life means that Christians are to look on pain and sorrow, death and woe, and respond with grief and indignation that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. But if we left it at that, if that's all that there was, then we'd be left with despair. A life of grief and anger that... That is not what God has invited us into. No, instead, Jesus' identity as the resurrection and the life leads us to something more. It leads us beyond despair, and it leads us into hope. Hope. Jesus gives his followers hope that sadness isn't the end of the story. Let's go back to that dialogue between he and Martha, beginning in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from him, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Martha's showing an awful lot of hope here, isn't she? An awful lot of faith. Now, I, I know when we talk about Mary and Martha, Martha usually kind of gets the bum rap, right? She's the one who's busy working and doing all sorts of things. She's not sitting at Jesus' feet, right? Like, Mar- Mary's the one we're all supposed to want to be like. But, but Martha, I mean, listen to the faith that she has, the expectation, the hope that she has. What did she say? Jesus, if you would have been here, you could have healed my brother. This faith that that death won't have the final say. I know he will rise again on the last day. Even faith that Jesus could now do the miraculous, right? That's what she says. Even now, I know that whatever you ask, it's, it's as though she knows that if she would just ask, if Jesus would say to the Father, rise him from the dead, that, that it could happen. She stops herself short. I, I kind of want to know why. <laughs> it's like, why, why didn't you just ask? But she has this deep abiding faith. This deep abiding faith in something beyond that she can see. This deep abiding faith in Jesus. And Jesus responds by affirming that faith and giving her hope. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus is taking the truth of the resurrection and he's saying it's not simply theoretical, it's personal. It's, It's embodied in him. It's not a simple abstract belief in a future day, but it's a present reality, a present experience. That's what he says in verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Okay, so in this, this, is, this can get kind of a little confusing, this, this verse. But what Jesus is doing is he's showing us that there's two aspects to this resurrection. Okay, there's two aspects. There's the future aspect, Right? Whoever believes in me and dies will live. So he's affirming Martha's faith in, in this future day of resurrection. The Bible alludes to this in the Old Testament. Lots of places in the Psalms, in the prophets, this expectation that a day would come when, when God would return and he would create uh, the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we call it in the New Testament. And that he would raise his saints to life. It's, it's alluded to in the Old Testament, but it's affirmed explicitly in the New. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that when Jesus returns, at the sound of the trumpet, when he returns, the dead who have gone before us, they will rise and they will have this new life, new bodies, and they will dwell with God for all eternity. This is what awaits us in the future. There's this future aspect to it, but there's not just a future aspect. We We hear in Jesus' response to Martha that there's also an immediate aspect as well. Everyone who lives in me shall never die. Okay, how how does that work? Because Mary and Martha, they died. They believed in him, but they died. All his apostles, all his original disciples, they have died. And we too, we will one day physically die. So what does he mean? Everyone who lives in me shall never die. Well, he's not talking about physical death, but now he's talking about spiritual resurrection, a spiritual resurrection that has already begun. It's already begun. You see, the way that the Bible talks about our relationship with Jesus is that what's occurred to him is now credited to us. So do you hear that? What, what has occurred to Jesus in the past 
is now credited to us now. And so um, in Romans 6, which was our uh, uh, reflection for the day in the order of our service, it, it talks about this. It alludes to it. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul talks about it explicitly. He says that, that those who have been raised with Christ, that's what he says, that we've already been raised with Christ, that that's our present existence, that, that when Jesus died, we were united to him in his death. It was credited to us, but, but when he rose again, then that was credited to us as well. So we are united to him. And so we, we not just wait for this future resurrection, but there is an already resurrection that has already occurred in us because Christ's resur resurrection is ours now. So being united to Jesus' resurrection, having this new life now, it, it has deep implications for us. It has deep implications for us, none more important that we live as people of hope. It gives us hope now. You see, the reason why we grieve and we have righteous anger and the reason why we do not fall into despair is because we are primarily people of hope. We're people of hope. Man, that is, that is such a powerful word, hope. It's not wishful thinking. For the Christian, it's not naive optimism. No, biblical hope is rooted and grounded in actual resurrection. You see, Jesus doesn't just make a claim that he is the resurrection. He shows that he is. He shows that he is. He approaches the tomb, and then he calls them to roll away the stone, and he cries out in verse 43, Lazarus, come out! And he did. He did. The dead were brought to life. The tomb was empty. He came out. I could imagine that there was gasping when they saw Lazarus walk out. Remember, what did they say? He's been dead for four days. It will already start to smell. And there he was in, his, in their very presence. Come out, and he did. The dead were brought to life. Jesus' voice pierced the silence of death and awakened Lazarus to new life. He shows he has the final word, not just over Lazarus' death, but over death itself. Because like Lazarus, Jesus spent days in the tomb as well. But after three days, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty, and so he showed that he once and for all has defeated death, and that it shall reign no more, but that he will have the last word over it. The tomb is empty. He proved that he is the defeater of death, and so that is why we don't have to despair. We don't have to worry. We do not have to fall into anxiety and despair, but instead we can have hope. Hope. Two of Cat's uh, favorite people in all the world were her nana and granddad. Um, they, were, they were this wonderful couple. I didn't have many opportunities to interact with them, but Cat loved them dearly, and the few interactions I did have with them showed why she loved them dearly. Nana and Granddad were, were married for 62 years, and they lived through a war together, and they raised two children, and they helped raise two grandchildren. And after 62 years, uh, there she was at her, his bedside. 
I didn't get to know them very well before they passed, but I do remember that after, shortly after granddad's death, um, we were in Florida at Nana's house, and I was in the kitchen with her. And I think it was just me and her at the time. We were talking, and she was sharing with me about granddad. She was reminiscing and, and telling me about him. And she said things like, well, that's where we used to sit when we paid the bills together. And, and this is how he liked his sandwich. And I would always cut it this way for him. And, and, and he liked to just ride with me in the car when I went to the grocery store just to be with me. 62 years, they loved one another and they cared for one another. And they lived together. And there on his deathbed as he was breathing his last, Nana stood beside her, him. She was filled with sadness at the certainty that her husband was about to leave her. He was, she was holding his hand. And there in the midst of her sadness and her grief, she looked at her daughter and she said, tell him he can go, Cheryl. Tell him he can go. Now think about that for a second. I mean, how is it that in the midst of the sorrow that she was feeling that her, her husband of 62 years was about to leave, how is it that knowing the grief that would surely ensue at his death, how is it that she could say, tell him he can go? She could say it because she had hope. She had hope. Hope that despite the pain of grief and the power of indignation, that there is resurrection. That there is resurrection, not just one that occurred in the past that we are now united to, but, but the hope of a resurrection to come. A day when we will no longer grieve and we will no longer feel righteous anger, when all the sad things will come untrue. Hope. Hope because Jesus, he is the resurrection and he is the life. And so friends, until that hope becomes sight, we, we should grieve and we should mourn and we should feel righteous indignation about this invader, but we should do so with expectant hope. Hope that the resurrection, he has come and he is coming again. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have sent your son, our Lord Jesus, to live and to die and to rise again. And we praise you and worship you that he is coming again. That death does not have the final answer, but you do, Lord Jesus. So we long for that day and we ask, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Bring your people to yourself. Gather us in your kingdom. And we would sing of your glory as your resurrected people. We pray all this in Jesus' name and God's people said together.